The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Happy sunny day wherever you are. Maybe the sunshine is just in your heart, but that's good enough. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. I'm Victoria Moran. I'm so happy to have you with us today. We have got lots going on. For starters, we have a giveaway, and that is a whole pound of double-acting aluminum-free baking powder from the good people at Bob's Red Mill. You know Bob's Red Mill. They're out there in Milwaukee, Oregon, employee-owned company. Really good folks, and they like our show, and they want you to have some of their stuff. So we actually have two pounds of baking powder. Honestly, I'm not a big baker. A pound of baking powder will last me until the whole world is vegan. But call in. Now, here's the number. This is U.S. only because of of shipping costs. We're only being able to provide this in the U.S., and that is 888-558-6489. Again, 888-558-6489. And just ask a question of one of our fascinating guests, and you can win something. That's a good day. Now, after the break, I will be bringing on a wonderful author. You know, lots and lots of of vegan writers have really good stuff to say, and I love them all. But sometimes you'll get one who's a writer's writer that I could just read until the cows come home and are freed and aren't on farms anymore and all that. And that's Mark Hawthorne. So he will be joining us with his brand new book, The Vegan Ethic. But right now, I am beyond thrilled to be introducing you to a brilliant, talented, and very committed gentleman named Thomas Wade Jackson. He is a filmmaker, and his project in the works is called The Compassion Project, a beautiful film to present the vegan way of life to people of faith, to people who identify as religious or spiritual, but who haven't expanded their circle of compassion to include other beings who don't happen to be homo sapiens. Now, interestingly enough, in that this is a giveaway day and a call-in day, you know how I met Thomas Jackson. Oh, my gosh, amazing things happen in this world We actually met in New York City. I was speaking at a unity of New York City, and Thomas was the volunteer coordinator. But it was one of those, hi, now we've met, now 
we haven't met. You know, <laughs> it was a quick thing. But later on, after he'd moved away from New York City, he called in to the Main Street Vegan Show one day when we were giving away uh, subscriptions to um, the American Vegan Society magazine. And that's how we met. And now, guess what? Main Street Vegan Productions is a producer of the Compassion Project. Is that cool? Doesn't that make you want some baking powder? Okay, Thomas is an award-winning filmmaker with a master's degree from Florida State University's prestigious College of Motion Picture Arts, where his thesis film, Slow Dancing Down the Aisles of the Quick Check, won both a Student Academy Award and the Student Emmy Award, as well as 20 other awards and honors. He recently directed the feature film Mind the Gap, which is now in post-production, and he is now hard at work on this great labor of love and loving-kindness, The Compassion Project. Welcome, Thomas Wade Jackson. Hi, Victoria. What a pleasure and honor to be here uh, as a guest this time. (laughs) Uh, And as a friend, you have been such, um, such a big part of the compassion project you've really helped us get in touch with the people we wanted to interview and this has just been amazing thank you thank you thank you <laughs> well, it, it has been my pleasure start to and we're still at the start so i can't say start to finish but i'm sure it will be start to finish as well so tell us where you came up with the idea for the compassion project well it actually kind of started in a meditation i had um I'd been vegan for about eight years when my daughter was born, and um, before that time, I, my spirituality really led to my veganness in a way. And uh, however, I'd also use my spirituality to kind of adopt a live and let live. Who am I to interfere with your karma approach? Because I've always been like a vegan and a sea of omnivores. Mm-hmm. But after my daughter was born, um, and then right after that, Cowspiracy came out. <laughs> I was like, okay, I can't sit around and play my ukulele anymore. I better like really do something. And so I really, when I, whenever that comes about, I, I start praying and meditating. And so I was meditating and this, uh, I just asked the question to the universe, like, what can I do to help bring peace on this planet, you know, for all beings um, and to leave a, a world that my daughter and her children can inhabit and all, and all children. Um, and in the middle of that meditation, a question popped in my mind that started when I first became vegan and I was attending services at a unity church and learning all about interconnectedness and compassion and like really Charles and Myrtle's teachings were getting through in a way that I don't think anybody was realizing at the time. And it really created me becoming a vegan and, um, Yet I looked around at Sunday and I'd see all these compassionate, enlightened beings, you know, like who were teaching me these things, making choices that felt really disconnected from the things they were teaching. And so when it popped up in the meditation, like what really it was just more it wasn't just a question. It was like this whole formed idea of like, you know, hey, I could see like my whole life, what it had been and all the things I'd done. And especially in the last few years had really prepared me to make a documentary. You know, I just saw Cowspiracy. I saw the effect it was having. And it was just this overwhelming of like, you have just touched your purpose. And I touched it in a way that I was just overwhelmed with emotion. I was like crying and laughing at the same time in the meditation. Like it was just, I felt this sense of like something being lifted off of me in a way and an opening up. And it's been like growing ever since, like ever, that was a year and a half ago. And as the project grows and the more I meet more vegans and more, you know, spiritual vegans, the more we, I connect with uh, this community, the more I just uh, continue to, uh, to feel myself growing and expanding as a, a vegan, a spiritual being. And, and I'm just so grateful to everyone so far that I've met and who is, who is, uh, given their support to us at the Compassion Project. Oh, and we have lots of, of great friends joining on with this. I know that uh, in defense of animals, uh, Lisa Levinson, who's in charge of vegan spirituality, is, is part of the project. And, and we just got an amazing um, executive producer with yes. us, Salish Rao. So that's very, very exciting. So give us just a, a sense. G- give us a a preview. What's this movie going to be about? Well, you know, right now it's called The Compassion Project because 
I I know like and and the, even from the time it started, it's more than just a, a one documentary film. I mean, I feel like it's either two documentary films with each of them connected, or one feature length, or one feature length, and lots of shorter material that people can use because you know a lot of people can't make the commitment to sit down you know i'm a father of a three and a half year old i know you can't sit down and watch a full-length documentary a lot of time but i can take seven minutes i can take three minutes and so what the first step is is that um after we finish the interviews with the vegans we're going to edit a lot of these um smaller videos that we'll release later after release of the film that's geared toward each film or each religion and each path of the people we interview and um so basically what the film will look like it will be a combination of those interviews intercut with us taking these shorter films and interviewing non-religious spiritual or, or excuse me spiritual and religious non-vegans who are living compassion in their lives leaders and not and people who are not leaders who are just you know uh, the faithful and um, and present them with this information and offer them a challenge of of a 30-day challenge of a compassionate living challenge that entails more than a vegan diet it entails like cutting out your your ma- your media in some way it's like cutting out the violence out of your life meditating on compassion a visiting a farm sanctuary you know there's things that we would incorporate into this compassionate living challenge and those who take it that you know that we out of those who take it we will choose some that we will follow and they will, we will include them in this process as well so we can see the evolution of a spiritual person because i really believe what what really needs to happen, we have, you know, I've read that like 84% of the population of the world is spirit, considers themselves spiritual or religious. Imagine if all of these people started really living the compassion that was at the heart of their spirituality, it would be a different world. So I feel like seeing that born within people who are, have already have compassion will help other people and will give us all tools that we can use in our own spiritual communities to take out and help these people make the connection between their faith their actions and what it does to the rest of the world and the creation of their of the creator. Oh, that's so beautiful. Now I know that you've had some people write to you and say, wait a minute, I'm compassionate, but I'm a rationalist. I'm an atheist. Come on. How about a movie for me? What do you say to them? I say I totally some of the, the letters I've gotten, I totally understand. I can understand why some how someone could look at religion and see the damage that's done in our culture and our society. I relate to that. I understand. But I also understand the connection I have and what it's played in my life and how it continues to be a part of a personal relationship. And I know so many other people have that relationship. I respect that a person would not have that. You know, I mean, my relationship goes to the point like, um, you know, it doesn't have to be called God. It's like the Star Wars. It's the force. It's this thing that runs through all things. And I think even people who may not consider, consider themselves religious may feel like sometimes they're in the flow or whatever. It's that flow. It's that energy that... It's the life energy that runs through each and every one of us. Now, the thing is, is I can't really address this in this film, but one of the comments that I got was, this is not a compassion issue. This is a justice issue. Well, it is for some people. And you know what? There are so many paths to the mountains. Whatever it takes to enlighten people to what's going on, I'm like all for it. And so my next idea is... You know, I really am interested in hearing their point of view, the humanists, the atheists, all of these people. I am so interested in it because I can relate to you wanting to live a good life and whatever your belief may be. And so my next film may be called The Justice Project. Oh, and, you've uh, got your work cut you know, out for you, yeah. <laughs> film after film. And, and I so agree with you and so support this because what I see is that it's a little bit like in, in vegan books. You know, it used to be you could just write a book about veganism, but now we need books about Oh, veganism for heart disease and veganism for raising raising kids and veganism for athletes and veganism for growing older because they're getting to be enough of us that we need to be kind of specific. And I look at the Compassion Project as not really a niche film because when you're talking 84% of the world's population, that's a pretty big niche. But obviously, it's geared to a certain group of people sort of the way another documentary that we're hearing a lot of buzz about um game changers which is about men and reach uh, defining macho uh, so that it can have compassion in it 
Well, that's not going to be a film about a bunch of girls <laughs> because it's geared to a different population. And, and yours is trying to get people who have this identity as religious or spiritual to take one step more and, and open it up. So um, for all of you guys listening, uh, let me give you a couple of URLs. These will be on the show notes as well. But really the most important place to go is GoFundMe because it takes a lot of money to make a movie. GoFundMe.com slash Compassion Movie. Uh, you can also go to the Facebook page, Compassion Movie, on Twitter, at Compassion Movie. The website is TheCompassionProjectFilm.com. So you've got something going over at GoFundMe, Thomas, called the 5x5 five five campaign. What's that? Well, it's the 5 and 5 campaign. The idea is, is that in today's uh, digital age, you know, to, in order to get a, a screening in a theater, in order to get on Netflix, you really have to build your audience before this film is released. So, you know, I know there's every vegan I've ever met, except for the few that you we've mentioned in the have always been like on fire about this idea. So my thing is, if you think this is a good idea, go and just contribute five dollars and do five social media shares and spread the word because the more names we get, the better chance we have at getting distribution, as well as the fact that, I mean, honestly, I tried to do the one in one because I wanted to keep it like it, everybody's got a dollar, but a GoFundMe would only let me do five dollars. But, yeah, it's really it's really about adding your name to the campaign and the five dollars really helps. It'll go to, a you know, we're going to use it to really get this film out there to the people and also to you. So you can use it as a tool in your community. So tell us some of the cool people that you have and will be interviewing. Wow. You know, um, you were one of the cool people, <laughs> as well as Dr. Tuttle and uh, and uh, so many people like Dr. Raul, actually, or uh, Raul, yes. actually not is only stepping up as a producer, but he is bringing his faith as a Hindu and his knowledge about the environment to really add a new layer to the film that we didn't have before he stepped Yeah, he, he's, he's amazing. Uh, climatehealers.org, I think. Climatehealing.org. I'm not sure. He's going to be on the show, I believe, in August. Yeah, I yeah, love that you go so far. You've got uh, um, at least one representative of, of Protestantism, Judaism, Roman Catholicism. You've got Buddhists. You've got a Jain. You've got a Native American. You've got people who are spiritual but not religious. We're not going to give it a name. You've got a Muslim. I mean, it's really, you're really reaching out and you're finding people in all these traditions who are saying, you know what? Veganism is the missing link. Veganism is what really brings love full circle. Do you have a last word? Uh, yes. Uh, please come and see us if you happen to be out at the Animal Rights Conference this uh, July. If you see, hear this before then, we'd love to see you. We're going to be out there. And thank you so much for every one of you for living a compassionate life and uh, for doing what you, you're, you know, for myself, for my daughter, for her, for the future generations, for the animals. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. You know, I've heard once that if you could only say one prayer, thank you would be the prayer. And I believe in not only saying it to the creator, but I say it, I try to say it to everybody I meet because I believe that everybody we meet has a chance, has an opportunity and does touch us. And I hopefully most people touch us in a positive way. And there's always a thank you. And if it's a negative way, there's a chance to say thank you because I learned patience. I learned a new way to, to be loving, even in a situation that may be uncomfortable. So thank you. Well, I, I'm so grateful, Thomas, that my listeners have been able to actually hear you. I have done a blog post about the Compassion Project. I'm all over social media about it. And I just don't know that people get it until they really hear you, because you are the real deal. You're an extremely spiritual person, an extremely open-minded person, and a very real person. And that, along with your incredible skills as a filmmaker, is going to make this, oh my gosh, dare we say, the next Blackfish, it could be. <laughs> so do check out the CompassionProjectFilm.com or head over there to... GoFundMe slash Compassion Movie. GoFundMe.com slash Compassion Movie. Give him $5 and five social media shares or more than that. Whatever your conscience 
tells you or just give a follow on, on Twitter and a shout out on Facebook. And as Thomas says, a prayer and a thank you, because we really want to meet me, reach. I don't know what's wrong with me today. We want to reach a whole heck of a lot of that 84%. Bless you, Thomas Jackson. Thanks so much for bringing me into this wonderful project. And thank you, Victoria, uh, all, for all you do. We're thanks very so much. much. <laughs> all the best. And uh, Mark Hawthorne, ooh, super writer and super vegan, coming up right after this. Online Radio has helped you grow spiritually through programs like this one. Please consider supporting this online radio programming. Visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for helping us continue to serve as the voice of an awakening world. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. It is the birthright of each and every one of us to live an awakened life. Most religions and spiritual traditions teach us that we need to adopt a certain belief system or follow some prescribed steps to attain a state of enlightenment. A long-held belief about awakening is that only a small number of people destined to become gurus or spiritual teachers can attain it. It is certainly true that until recent times, only a small number of people on the planet had attained this state of full self-realization. These saints, mystics, and spiritual masters were seen as special. They certainly were at the time. However, times are changing. This message was brought to you by T.J. Woodward, host of Awakened Living Radio. Learn more from T.J. on his weekly podcasts. Episodes are available on unityonlineradio.org, iTunes, and Google Play Music. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan Show. Now, I am sitting here looking at two pounds of wonderful Bob's Red Mill baking powder. And if somebody doesn't call and, and win this, then I'm just going to have to bake stuff. And then, you know, I could get fat and unhappy. You don't want that to happen to me, do you? Well, if you don't, and if you'd like to do some baking for the people that you love, give a call, 888-558-6489. You can ask any kind of vegan or animal rights question you want of our next guest, Mark Hawthorne, who is coming right up. He has a beautiful, beautiful new book out. It's called A Vegan Ethic 
embracing a life of compassion toward all. Now, lest you think, I'm already vegan, or I've already read a book about being vegan. I don't need that. Yes, you do. Honestly, this is unique. This brings it all together. Very interestingly, in a way, it's kind of what Thomas was just talking about, that we're not just talking about animals. We're talking about the whole. Mark Hawthorne is an activist. His previous books include Bleating Hearts, The Hidden World of Animal Suffering, and Striking at the Roots, A Practical Guide to Animal Activism, Empowering People Around the World to Get Active for Animals. He stopped eating meat after an encounter with one of India's many cows in 1992 and became an ethical vegan a decade later. And like I said before, he's a heck of a writer. Seriously, treat yourself to the words that he puts together and puts together for a cause. Welcome, Mark Hawthorne. Oh, thank you, Victoria. That's uh, very kind of you, and I really appreciate you having me on your show. It's a great pleasure. Well, I'm very excited about having you on this show. I actually contacted you several months ago because my husband found an article that you had written, I think, on the Huffington Post. It might have been somewhere else, and he was so impressed. He's just, you have to have this guy on your show. <laughs> and well, that's, that's unusual. Oh, uh, well, thanks to your husband. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell him that. So this book, which I love, starts with you in Pamplona for the running of the bulls. So... Why on earth were you there for that? And what did that experience do for you? Well, I, I took two years uh, to travel around the world. I was living in California. Uh, I, I still live in California, but this was uh, in the, this was 1990, and I I wanted to travel the world and sort of live out of a backpack. And I ended up in Europe, and it was the summer of '92. Uh, and I decided I was going to go to Pamplona with some friends to run with the bulls. And of course, you know, up, up to that time, I hadn't really considered non-human animals. Like most people, I was an omnivore, although I thought of myself as an animal lover. And running with the bulls and then realizing later that I was basically supporting their deaths in the bull ring that same day uh, really affected me. It sort of woke up my conscience a bit. It... uh it was the start of me recognizing that all animals want to live. Now, I wish I could say that I went vegan that day, but uh, as you mentioned, uh, it took me a while to go vegan after that. But a few months after being in Pamplona, I was living with a Buddhist family in India, and almost everything I ate came out of the, their garden. We were up in the Himalayas, and I was eating an almost 100% plant-based diet, and I felt great. And uh, it was amazing. I, I just I was really surprised at how good it felt. And as winter approached, the family dug a large hole in the garden and harvested the remaining vegetables and they buried them. And this was their method of food preservation. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have refrigerators. And after this, they let a cow into the garden. And, and as she nibbled on the leftover stalks and stems, I considered her for a long time. I realized uh, two things, Victoria. One is that she had as much desire and right to live as I did, and two is that I felt physically and even spiritually better than I had ever felt living on a, a mostly plant-based diet. So I would say that my experience in Pamplona was really the first time I had considered another animal and it planted a seed that would grow into my ethical veganism. Uh, the experience also helped me remember that everyone is on their own path and we never know uh, what will influence a person to consider going vegan. What beautiful stories. Gosh. If you have a question for Mark Hawthorne, give us a call, 888-558-6489. So, Mark, I said a little bit about how I see this book as differing from other books about veganism. How do you see it? Um, well, the book takes a holistic approach to veganism, and it regards it as a path to compassion not only for animals but for humans. Uh, so it's a concise guide, uh, excuse me, a concise introduction to animal rights and a guide to going and staying vegan, but it also explores the connections that all forms of oppression and systems of oppression uh, share, which include power and privilege. I also address privilege at length in the book. Now, there are all kinds of privilege. There's gender privilege. Uh, white privilege, body privilege, um, English-speaking privilege, etc. And society gives 
unfair advantages to these groups, often without realizing it. Now, a person with privilege generally does not see it, and so it causes them to not acknowledge a problem. I should add that being male or white or part of an advantaged class doesn't inherently make somebody a villain. It's not Obviously, it's not uh, what you're born with. It's what you do with it. Um, and privileged people, and I include myself in this group, we take many things for granted, and overcoming privilege is especially challenging, again, since it's virtually invisible. And so I wanted to shine a light on these issues and also spotlight so many of the wonderful activists who are working to bring these oppressions to the forefront. And I talk a lot about them in the book, a lot of these activists in the book. I have a devil's advocate question. Sometimes when we think about all the people that there are out there and how we really want to reach as many warm leads, as my salesman mother used to call them, people who are are looking to do this for any reason, who just have a spark at all. Do you ever think that sometimes when we bring in all these other issues and we talk about things like class and privilege, it all seems very left-leaning and people who lean more in the right are just going to say, oh, it's just those vegans. What do you do with that question? Well, obviously everybody's different. And when you're approaching activism, you have to, no matter what the issue is, you know, you want to consider your audience. So, um, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, Victoria, that people who are more progressive, um, more left, so to speak, are probably the ones who are going to be more likely to resonate with the vegan message. But, you know, we can't not discount. Not necessarily. No, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the other people who seem to be less inclined to hear your message are the ones we pro- perhaps have to have more patience with, and we have to find other ways to introduce them to the issue. Uh, we have to show sometimes more compassion for them, which is a challenge. Yeah, it's very interesting. I remember hearing somebody, oh, this had to be 30 years ago, saying we need to make veganism part of, of the whole liberal movement, and it needs to be there with all these other issues that liberals embrace. And I remember thinking at that time, that's great, but how are you going to save all the animals with only half the people? So it's, it's this interesting kind of question for um, con- continued research. I'm always very happy when I hear from someone that that is not coming from where we um, stereotypically think that somebody is, is going to come from and comes out for veganism. So it, it's a very slippery slope sometimes, but I must say that you traverse it beautifully in this book. You, you really, really make the point for every issue, and you do it in a way that doesn't make somebody wrong who hasn't thought about it before or who thought about it but saw it in a different way. The way you write opens people up to looking at what you're saying without having them shut down to say, well, I don't see it that way. It's like, oh, I've never thought of it that way before. So that's why I really think this is a a special, special book. So you have a chapter on human rights in this book. And I know some animal activists are just so upset with people. I think they wouldn't care if we had any rights or not. (laughs) So what's that chapter about? Well, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, The public often accuses animal activists and, you know, by extension, vegans of not caring about humans. So I'm trying to help disabuse the public of that idea with this book. We don't we don't have to ration our compassion, I guess, is the best way to say it. We can care about humans as well as animals and work toward liberation for everyone. In fact, as many activists have pointed out, we're not going to have true liberation for one oppressed group if another group remains oppressed, whether that's that group is uh, human or non-human. So I think a lot of people in the animal rights movement have this. They've become fed up with humanity and all the destruction we cause, and while That's completely understandable. I think we need to take a closer look at how the same systems that oppress animals also oppress humans. And to your earlier point about how the book is constructed and written, thank you very much for that. As you were talking about it, I was thinking that part of the way, the reason that I wrote the book the way I did is is to try not to be judgmental. If you're writing a book about 
compassion, you don't want to show people disrespect and, and not be compassionate with the reader. So thank you for pointing that out. You do a great job. So <laughs> happy to point that out. Now, you also talk about slaughterhouse workers. And because I spent a day in a slaughterhouse, my listeners have heard me talk about this more than once. The greatest shock of that day was how much empathy I left with for those workers standing in in blood in that refrigerator, hearing those screams, using those sharp instruments with their cold hands. And it was so obvious that these were people who would be doing anything else if they could, but that was the only option for them. It was just the most stunning day of seeing how a cruel industry is cruel to everybody. And, and it even ripples out in cruelty to, to the consumers with, with the atherosclerosis and, and whatnot. So uh, what about slaughterhouse workers? What's their situation and how should we regard them? Um, well, first of all, I should say that, and I do in the book, nobody wants to work on a slaughter line killing animals eight hours a day. Uh, not only is this work grueling and psychologically, psychologically damaging, but it's dangerous and the workers are generally mistreated. Um, many of the people working in slaughterhouses are economic refugees who have traveled to the United States to find work that, you know, so that they can support their families. I'm, I'm not defending the killing of animals and I know you're not either. I'm just saying that the people who do this work are also oppressed. You know, they suffer from depression um, on-the-job injuries, they're exploited. And because they're often in the U.S. without documentation and might not speak English, they're often afraid to speak up for fear of being fired, or they simply don't understand all their rights as workers. So uh, let's acknowledge the role that consuming animals plays in contributing to these abuses. The popularity of meat, after all, creates a demand for slaughterhouses and the suffering they inflict. It's so true. Everybody loses. So I love the word veganism and vegan. I think it says what it's supposed to say, and people finally know what it is and how to pronounce it. A lot of people don't care for the word, and you say you're trying to change its definition. How so? Well, I would say I'm trying to expand it. Um, You know, vegans tend to think they've cornered the market on compassion, Humans are animals, too. So if we think of a vegan product as not being produced through the exploitation of animals, it would be great if we could include human animals. Uh, One of the activists in the book is Lauren Ornelas, the founder and director of Food Empowerment Project, and she has a great quote. And she says, just because it's vegan doesn't mean it's cruelty-free. So, you know, there's the other side of the word, and that is that you know, from an aspirational standpoint, I think that the, the term is important because it gives people new to the movement something to strive for. Um, maybe their diet is vegan, but they still won't wear leather. So I think it's an important term. I, I, I know there's debate in the movement on how we should apply it, but I think if we're going to apply it to something that's cruelty-free or to something that's not exploitive of animals, then let's include humans in that as well. That's cool. Now, you answer a lot of questions really, really well in this book, and very, very clearly. I I was saying before um, you came on the show that uh, you had um, a way of writing that's beautiful and sophisticated and yet so clear that a six-year-old could see one of your answers to these questions and understand it. So I'm going to ask you some of those questions in a bit, but I see that we have a question. Michael, are you on the line? Hi, Victoria. Yes, I am. Hey, how you doing, uh, Michael? And I believe I you. recognize you as Michael of the Vegan Mose. Just That would be me. Just ranked the world's best blog by Vegetarian, by Veg News Magazine. Well, one of the top 21, but I'll take best. Okay, okay, you're the world's best. Yeah, well, congratulations on that. Uh, VeganMose.com, fabulous blog about food and travel. And I guess you've won some baking powder. So, congratulations. (laughs) Well, I'm going to see you this weekend. You're having that wonderful fundraiser for Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary. So, uh, I'll come bringing baking powder. Do you have a question? 
for, um, for our guest. I do. So this past weekend for Father's Day, I was up at a family gathering. Everyone knows that my husband, Ethan, and I are vegan, and yet, and we do our best to suck it up when we are with everybody and watching them just devour animals. But we run into a situation with my brother's mother-in-law, who she is constantly posting videos of like playing baby goats, and I keep trying to get her to come to the sanctuary. And she has, at this point, said, "I'm too scared to go up because I know if I do, I will never be able to like eat the foods I love anymore." So she's definitely on that slippery slope. And as she's sitting talking with us, how much she loves animals, and oh, it's like I never eat beef. As we sit her watching her bite into a hamburger. How do you deal with situations like that and just not completely lose it? Because it becomes really tough after a while for me to just sit there and watch someone who's saying one thing and then doing the exact opposite. So what advice do you have just to not get discouraged and also not lash out? Uh, well, Michael, first of all, congratulations on winning the baking powder. Thank you. And and. <laughs> And, uh, and thank you for all the work that you do. And with regard to your question, uh, uh, two things. First of all, I had a very similar experience when I was in the process of going vegan. And that was, I was afraid to go to an animal sanctuary because I was a vegetarian and I thought that I was just fine the way I was. I figured, Hey, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm volunteering for a human rights organization. I'm saving animals by not eating their flesh. But I did not want to give up eggs, and I did not want to give up dairy, and I was afraid that if I went to a sanctuary, they would tell me that's what I had to give up. And so by when when I finally sucked it up and went to a sanctuary, they didn't tell me that, but I made the ethical decision that that was what was best. So it was a transition for me, and it showed me that we're all sort of on this path. Now, with regard to your mother-in-law, what you might suggest is, you know, she's clearly a compassionate person. She clearly loves animals. And you might suggest that for your birthday, for example, in lieu of a gift, you go out to whatever's, I don't know if Woodstock or farm sanctuary or whatever's yeah. closest to you. You say, look, would you, would you, as a gift to me, spend a day with me or however much time just exploring? Nobody's going to put, a hard sell on you. We know you love animals and we just want you to be able to experience these animals enjoying freedom. You know, these are animals who, you know, you and I know for the most part are bred and raised for human consumption, but here's a chance for your mother-in-law to enjoy these animals running around gambling, gambling and enjoying themselves. So I, I would try that approach. Um, and and see if that works because you, again you're kind of playing the the sympathy card you're asking her to do it for your birthday or perhaps mm-hmm. perhaps for some other uh, special occasion but you know, you might be surprised uh, I, I was surprised that I took myself out to a sanctuary so you never know what's going to change somebody's heart no, oh that's a, that, that's a great idea it is, and what do you, what would you think about maybe as a gift for someone like that giving them an animal adoption. For a year, would that be too pushy? I think that's a great idea. Uh, an animal adoption from a sanctuary, you know, Vine Sanctuary in Vermont does those, uh, and I know a lot of others do them as well. So um, I think that's a fantastic idea. Well, you always kind right. of feel close to somebody you've adopted. Yeah, and you get updates throughout the year on how they're doing, and then you're likely to want to go out and visit them. So I think that's a great entree into that idea. No, I really appreciate that. I think those are great ideas. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. And then, of course, Michael, all you have to do is cook for people. <laughs> Not well, all of us have that gift. You know, people eat the food, and you know, my feeling is I'm not comfortable necessarily like, speaking to, like, handing out leaflets. That's not my forte, but if I can get you through your stomach, I'll get you to stay. That is one of the most effective ways because the first thing that people wonder about 
when they're contemplating going vegan is what am I going to eat? So if you can show those people that they can have delicious, satisfying, nutritious meals, you're going to win them over. You're, you're halfway there. Fantastic. All right. Thanks Thanks, so much. Thank you so much for calling. Thanks for listening. My pleasure. And I'll see you this weekend, Victoria. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. That was a great question. That was a good question. um, Mark, we hear a lot of the same questions all the time, and you cover some of these very interestingly in, in your book. And so I want to ask you a couple of these questions so one of them that we're hearing a lot now is, but I eat humane meat. And that phrase just makes it seem like, well, if I didn't eat humane meat, I would be a terrible person. So what do you say to that one? Well, right. And people don't want to feel like they're contributing to cruelty, so they, but they also want to eat animals. And so they go for the you know, quote unquote, humane options, these things that are so-called, you know, cage free or organic or certified humane. And, it, and it, 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 it tends to give the consumer the impression that they're off the ethical hook, uh, for lack of a better expression. But we have to remind such people that, and I do in the book, is that, you know, much of the cruelty about these industries is already built into the animal. They're, they're bred for, uh, for, to, to grow fast, and they have, as a result, a lot of congenital problems. And the other thing that I that always comes to mind for me is that no matter if an animal is raised quote unquote humanely or they're raised in a factory farm, they almost all go to the very same slaughterhouses and die the same horrific deaths as other farmed animals. So. Even though their short life of a few weeks or a couple of months or whatever it ends up being might be a little nicer, they're still killed. And there's nothing humane about that. That's so true. And I always think about these wonderful historic vegetarians, some of whom were vegan before we had the word, talking Da Vinci and Tolstoy and Shelley and, and all these people that, that we love to quote and brag about that they were on our team, there was no factory farming. It was the killing that caused them to be vegetarian. And I think we right. sometimes forget that. Right. So how about the question, what would happen if everybody went vegan? There'd be all these animals. Yeah, that's one of those questions that, uh, omnivores try to catch vegans on like, you know, they're doing the world a favor by eating animals and, and keeping them off the face of the earth. But you know, we have to remind these people that again, animals are raised and bred for human consumption. And so, you know, in this country, I think the current statistic is 10 billion land animals. And that doesn't include all the fishes we pull from the sea or, or aquaculture, but, all these animals are raised and bred, and they would not exist if it weren't for animal agriculture. So, you know, some of these species would flourish. They would continue to, to go on. Now, the the colonizers who came to this country brought a great many of these animals. They brought cows. They brought lots of pigs. And so they're not native to this continent. But... Other animals, and, and they would probably continue to flourish, some of them. Some animals would probably die off. Uh, and I, you know, like cows, for example, there's, there's some debate on what would happen to those animals. But if, if they were to go extinct, I, I have to say that might be controversial, but I think that's a better option than continuing to exploit them for human purposes. I think it's better than raising and killing them and having absolutely no compassion about what happens to them. Mm. And and so many of these questions are so if, I mean, if everybody went vegan tomorrow, I don't know what would have to happen for that to happen. But I think that if it did, there would be such a shift in human consciousness that everybody with a backyard would take a cow and a few goats and a pig. And here in my New York city apartment, I could handle three or four chickens, you know, right. Right. We would we would figure it out on that great day. Now, one of the questions that we don't hear quite as often, but when we do, it's a real heart tugger, and that's the one about indigenous people. 
So we always hear, well, well, what about the Inuit? What about Tibetans? I mean, they have to eat animals because they live in areas where nothing grows. So you vegans, are you superior to them? Uh, no, we're not. Uh, <laughs> I, I do, that's the short answer. Uh, you know, when a, when a non-vegan brings that question up, again, they're, chances are they're trying to catch somebody. They're trying to show a vegan that, oh, you're not as ethical as you think you are. Or the, the, the person asking the question could genuinely be very curious about it. They're, they're wondering, and that's, and that's great. But either way, my advice is, is that the Tibetans and the Inuits are subsistence hunting. Uh, there is nothing that grows basically on the Tibetan plateau, but a certain plant that yaks eat and the Tibetans in turn eat the yak. Um, do I like that? No, I don't. I would much rather that the whole world was vegan, but from a practical standpoint, as an activist, I think it makes much more sense for us to spend our time focused on the 99.9% of the population of the planet who can easily, more easily, I shouldn't say easily, more easily adopt a vegan diet than somebody who has to hunt or fish because their life depends on it. Oh, I completely agree with you. I spent quite a bit of time in, in Tibet on two separate occasions, and it was a very interesting story. You're supposed to be either in a tour group or with a private guide when you're in right. Tibet so that the Chinese can keep an eye on you. But right. in our case, it seems that our Chinese guide was drunk back at the Holiday Inn, and we didn't have one. So we were this strange anomaly of three Americans on our own in Lhasa, and the word got around very quickly. And so all these Tibetans were making their way to our hotel room, trying to get us to take things to their relatives in India and Nepal and, and the States. So we became very entrenched very early so we were invited to people's homes for for meals and somehow when they found out we were vegan i don't know how they did it they managed to find vegetables mostly cabbage and potatoes but some other things too it probably cost them a month's salary but they would serve us and then they would go eat in another room And this happened several times with different families. So I asked someone what the deal was, and they said, oh, but you're vegan. So they think you're some kind of super Buddhist, (laughs) and you're just too holy to eat with them. And I thought, oh, my goodness, if anybody's holy, it's these people. But it's so interesting. You know, we always think, oh, the people that have to eat animals want to eat animals. Well, not necessarily, certainly not when you've got a lot of Buddhism running through your culture. Yeah, well, it's wonderful you were able to have that experience. Amazing experience. And my daughter, this is a very sweet story. My daughter was eight the first time we went, and then she was 10 the second time. And, of course, yak butter tea. Now, that's just what they give you. Yeah, I had that when I was in Ladakh. I know. And you just can't say, you know, no, because it's, it's just, it's what they do. And so... I was just sort of, you know, sipping a little bit. And I know somebody's going to write in and say, then you're not vegan because you said you've been vegan since 1983 and you sipped yak butter tea in 1992. Damn you. (laughs) Well, okay. But I did. But my daughter, as a lifelong vegan who had never consumed any kind of, of animal food ever, she would just politely bring it up to her lips and tilt the cup a little bit and set it down. And in their culture, as you know, they have to keep filling it up. You can't have any emptiness in your cup. And they'd look at her cup and get this perplexed look like, this is interesting. She keeps drinking, but it never goes anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I found found yak butter tea, uh, and I had that before I was vegan, actually. Uh, To be so bitter, I had to think of it as soup and not tea. Oh, I mean, it's, it's just absolutely awful. But, but yeah. you know, some things happen when you're traveling in, in places that it's almost like another planet. I, I mean, I remember we were out with the uh, nomads on the plateau that you mentioned. Uh, a man from Save the Children volunteered to take my daughter and me out there. It was a very long trip. And we met these people who live in such a different way from anybody I'd ever met in my entire life. They're, they're nomadic. They, they bring their tent and all their belongings with them. And it's just they and, and the yaks. And so 
we ask all kinds of questions through the translator about what their life is like. And then just to return the favor, I, I said to the translator, we'll ask him what he'd like to know about America. And the head of the family said, America, what's that? <laughs> so wow. it's different. Now, yeah. you have a section early in the book with a phrase that is fascinating, and it is our moral contradictions. Talk about our moral contradictions. Boy, how much time do I have? Um, <laughs> Not long. <laughs> well, you know, we we live in a world where we love animals for for the most part and we like we pride ourselves on that. Yet at the same time as Michael pointed out talking about his mother-in-law in the call earlier, even animal lovers want to exploit animals. Not want in the sense that, oh, I want to be bad, but want in the sense that I want to pleasure. I I want to enjoy myself. I want to uh, taste things that are good. And so we have this kind of, there's this, this, this dual attitude that goes on that we're, that we're blind to. And I think at some level we feel guilty about it. I think we, we understand deep down that what we're doing is not ethical. And I think those are that kind of percolates to the to the surface when people ask some of the questions that you and I have been talking about of vegans. It's like, well, is this right? Is this a, a moral contradiction, or am I, as again Lauren Arnellis says at the Food Empowerment Project, am I eating my ethics? And for the most part, I don't think people are eating their ethics. I think they are running counter to what they believe deep down inside. And so part of the goal of this book is to kind of help people acknowledge what's going on with themselves in a, in a compassionate way to, as they read the book, maybe see themselves a little bit and say, yeah, that's me. That's, that's how I actually view the world, but I don't want to, I don't want to consume against my ethics. I want to, I, I want to live uh, more compassionately. Oh, hallelujah. Our time is up. The book is A Vegan Ethic, Animal Rights, Human Rights, Environment, Embracing a Life of Compassion Toward All. Uh, Mark Hawthorne, author on Facebook, markhawthorne.com is the website. Twitter, Mark Hawthorne, all that will go on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Just click on podcast and you'll get a drop down and you'll find the urls for both mark and for thomas jackson and the compassion project wishing you all compassion and health well-being and a bright future god bless you eat those veggies thank you so much thanks mark you were wonderful Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. moment we live can be holy and all we need to do to experience that state is to make the decision to do so everything we do can be a prayer and by using our innate creativity with intention in every aspect of our lives that can indeed be true author carla kincannon wrote creativity is so much more than art making It is a tool for navigating through everyday experiences to find the sacred in each God-given moment. Discover Creative Spirit, Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Central Time, and experience the joy of connecting to spirit through creative expression.
I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.